I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. So hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing good, John. How are you? I'm excited. This is a new project. A little bit of background to all of you out there listening. John and I met about three million years ago at a music festival in the middle of Maine. And ever since then, we've... (laughs) I don't want to say inseparable because I don't want to get Natalie mad at me, but... John has been one of my closest friends ever since. We've always been kind of looking for a way to collaborate with each other. This was an opportunity that we were able to sit down and talk about our love for Broadway. Yeah. John has has, uh, helped me out several times on multiple different projects that I've put together doing orchestrations and arrangements for me. But this is the first time we're really actually getting to work kind of actively together on something, which I think is really exciting for both of us. What we're trying to do here is each week we're going to sit down and talk about a show. We'll give you a little bit of background, where it played, when it played, who it's written by, who it starred, and a brief summary of the plot. Yeah, and then after that, we're just going to talk about the show and talk about the parts of the show that we really enjoy, that we really like, that we find appealing, and that hopefully you would find appealing as well. Ultimately, think about this as your own private pre-concert lecture for Broadway musical. Maybe you take a little bit away from it. Maybe it encourages you to listen to that recording for the first time or the hundredth time, but to enjoy it. Absolutely. Our show for this episode is Bright Star with music by Edie Brickell and Steve Martin, lyrics by Edie Brickell, and book by Steve Martin. The world premiere was at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego in September of 2014, before moving to the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. in 2015. The show played the Court Theater, a part of the Schubert organization, and its preview was on February 25th. It opened on March 24th and ran for 109 performances. It had one national tour, which ran from October 2017 to July of 2018. During its Broadway run, Bright Star was nominated for five Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Book, Best Original Score, Best Actress, and Best Orchestration. The show starred Carmen Cusack as Alice Murphy, Paul Alexander Nolan as Jimmy Ray Dobbs, and A.J. Shively as Billy Kane. Bright Star was directed by Walter Bobby, music directed by Rob Berman, and choreography was done by Josh Rhodes. The show opens at the end of World War II as young soldier and aspiring writer Billy Kane returns home to Hayes Creek, North Carolina. He decides to submit some of his stories to the Asheville Southern Journal after some encouragement by his longtime friend Margot. At the journal, he meets Alice. After being less than truthful with her, she considers publishing his work. We then move to 1923, where the audience is reintroduced to Alice, now age 16. After flirting with Jimmy Ray Dobbs, the mayor's son, she returns home to be lectured by her parents, which is mirrored in Jimmy's experience, who receives a similar lecture from his father. Back in 1945, Billy decides to move to Asheville to pursue writing after being enticed by Alice and a check for $10. Back home in Hayes Creek, Margot is lamenting Billy's decision to move, as it wasn't what she was hoping for the two of them. 
Returning to 1923, Alice finds out she's pregnant and the child is Jimmy Ray's. The mayor arranges for her to be stashed away in a remote cabin while pregnant, where she spends her time dreaming with Jimmy about their unborn child and knitting a small sweater. Upon giving birth, the mayor takes the child against the wishes of Alice, but with the support of her father, saying that the child will be put up for adoption, but the reality is much more nefarious. After taking the baby away, hidden in a valise, he throws the bag in a river when no one is looking. A year later, Alice is getting ready to go away to college in Chapel Hill. Jimmy originally plans to go with her, but after his father tells him what happened to his child, he decides to stay, knowing he can never tell Alice the truth. Flashing forward to 1946, Alice tells Billy that one of his stories is going to be published in the journal. He invites her to his hometown to see where many of his stories take place, and she agrees. But she takes a detour to Raleigh to search adoption records. She can't find anything of value, but manages to encounter a now-adult Jimmy Ray, who tells her the fate of their child. She then reconciles with her father and lies to him, telling him that the baby was adopted to a loving family. She then continues on to Billy's hometown of Hayes Creek, and she is given the grand tour where they end up at his childhood home. Looking at his mementos, she sees a small sweater, the same one she knitted as a teenager for her baby. Billy's father then tells the story of finding him in a river, meaning that Billy is her long-lost son. Billy runs off, unable to accept any of what he's heard. Weeks later in Asheville, Alice has told Jimmy Ray about their son when they both are approached by Billy and Margot. Billy now gets to meet his birth father for the first time. Margot runs off a flirtatious woman by claiming she is Billy's fiance, which prompts Jimmy Ray to propose to Alice. And then it ends. <laughs> which, you know, it always struck me as a little funny because one of the things I've always loved about Bright Star is just kind of how natural it is how it, it kind of stays away from so many kind of Broadway tropes. And then we're ending with a double proposal here, which is very Broadway. It, it's unusual that, that it, it escapes for so long to kind of stick the landing both feet in the Broadway. Yeah, I mean, I feel very lucky that I was able to see this show on Broadway, given its short run. But it feels like a Broadway musical without being kind of a flashy, glitzy, stereotypical Broadway musical. But I think one of the things that's really funny to me about the second act is, you know, the first act ends with a child being taken from its mother and then being murdered by not only being thrown in a river, but being thrown off a moving train over a bridge down into a river. They really tried to make sure that they got the job done. That's right. And they failed. But then they start act two with this song about how everything's going to be all right. It's like they finished act one and we're like, oh, this was maybe a little bit too dark. We need to, we need to start with something that reminds everyone, that's eh, going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. Well, and that's one of the things that always struck me, especially about the book of this show. Um, Steve Martin is probably well known to pretty much everybody in the U.S., if not the world, as a comic and someone who really delved into a dry humor, a dry satire. And going through the book for this show, it amazes me 
how earnest it is, how very straightforward and, and there's a sweetness and a sincerity to it, which you don't necessarily expect when you hear the word Steve Martin. And to be clear, if you don't have any expectations when you hear the, the name Steve Martin, you need to get yourself on YouTube and do some quick searching and watch a bunch of clips because it's all fantastic. Probably one of the best comics of the late 20th century. Go find The Jerk and watch that. Excellent, yeah, excellent choice, excellent choice. So I know one of the things that's always struck you is the music of this show, which, you know, is easy on the on the surface, but like, for example, a song like Asheville, what are your impressions of that? Asheville, to me, first of all, is my favorite song in the show. And setting aside the fact that it is just really great music, it was also brilliantly staged in the original production. So we've got that kind of classic problem of someone is singing a song to someone who can't hear it. And the way they get around that in Asheville is they have Billy leaving in all the dialogue beforehand. And then when the song starts, they move backwards physically through all of the staging that was just accomplished to get him out the door. And then he's now back in the room for Margot to sing Asheville to him about this life that she imagines and what could be if he decides to come back to her. Yes, stuff like that is always kind of fascinating me when you see it in any type of production. The kind of intricacy, you always think of Broadway as this stereotypical action, action, now I'm going to sing my emotions. But in this case, by using the staging the way they are, the music isn't just I'm going to sing my emotions, but my emotions are affecting my view of the story or affecting the audience's view of the story and giving a little bit more insight. It's it's almost like having, a, for lack of a better term, a director's commentary of that moment, which is something you get in literature a lot, especially books written in the first person, but you don't get in movie, you don't get in theater or musical theater because of the external nature of it. And it kind of speaks to the cleverness of this show to use it in a way that's effective, but not hokey. Yeah, and it was very sparse in terms of the stage elements. You know, there there weren't a lot of big set pieces. There weren't a lot of large technical moving elements. It really succeeded on the strength of the material and, and the performances that were delivered. I would agree with the exception of one thing, the placement of the band. And I know this is something that is near and dear to both of our hearts because it's something we always live ever so slightly in fear of. But this show actually kind of messed with us a little bit. Part of the band is actually on stage. You have your your fiddle player, a guitar player, your banjo player, your bass player, and the piano, I believe, as is on stage. And not only are they on stage, but their home bass is this framed barn-like structure. I get, it's kind of hard to describe what it is. It's, it's definitely the frame of a building. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's multifunctional throughout the show, but it definitely, at least as an audience member to me, gave off kind of home or house vibes. And it moves. Yes. So not only is your band on stage, but your band is now moving around the stage, sometimes even while playing, which as a music director terrifies me, but is done well enough. It's entrancing. It's something that adds another bit of charm to the show. 
I can think of a you know a couple of other shows. Rent always has the band on stage, kind of in that superstructure. Spring Awakening always had the band in the back of the stage. It's a rare thing to have, and when it's done well, it just adds to the show for me. I mean, of course, I'm always entranced by things like that, but here it's done just exquisitely. Yeah, and it, it's also you know those those musicians are also very much characters within the show. Yeah, they're they're housed kind of in that central set piece that does move around and shift locations. But there were definitely moments where they also moved out of that to either create space for people to be in the house or if they're playing just to be kind of interacting more. You know, there's a great bar scene where they're playing kind of a, a hoedown drinking song and they definitely, you know, the fiddle player and the guitar player left the house and kind of more moved into the bar area to really be a part of the action, which is, a, you know, it's just great to see music integrated so fluidly to a performance in that way. Absolutely. Anything that kind of can help take away that wall between your band and your cast and make it a more integrated unit is something that always is welcome, as long as it's done right. On the whole, though, the music for me is one of the absolute best things of this show. I'm drawn towards the music. Frankly, the style, it's not a Broadway idiom. Bluegrass, the first thing you that does not come to mind is The Great White Way. There and, and it's let's be honest, it's legit bluegrass here. They're using claw hammer technique in banjo. They've got doublings in guitar and mandolin. They're using the fiddle, not just a violin, but an actual fiddle with fiddle technique and fiddle styling. It's a legitimate bluegrass experience that doesn't come off as pandering or hokey, works for the show, but also works for the idea of music on Broadway. It's big, it's expansive, and it helps really tie into this message that the show is trying to put forward. Yeah, absolutely. And we should talk about, you know, we mentioned that both Edie Brickell and Steve Martin collaborated on the music, but Steve Martin, in addition to being a fantastic comedian, is also a very highly respected banjo player and like legitimately moves and works in that community of musicians. At this point, he's released several albums that you can find pretty much everywhere. He has a legit band. He works with legitimate bluegrass artists. And he's becoming as well known for his banjo playing now that he was for his comedy in the 70s and 80s. Not to say he's not funny, because he's still actually hilarious. If you ever want to be amused for a couple of hours, just go find his Twitter feed. But he definitely has a foot as a legitimate musician, and he knows what he's doing, and and he's respected by his fellow musicians. Yeah, I think this didn't happen when I saw the show, but I am led to believe that if he was in town and free, Act Two starts with an entract where those five core band members kind of come out on stage before everything else and just play a song together and have a good time. And I understand that if Steve Martin was in town and around, he would come in and and join the group that little bit. Which had to have been fantastic to see and would have been something I would have loved to, to experience. Absolutely. So we talked about how the show starts out kind of lighthearted at the beginning of Act Two and reminds us that everything is going to be okay. But one of the things I also really appreciate about the music is that it really does a good job at times of of mimicking real life emotions. There's a beautiful song in Act Two called I Had a Vision where Jimmy Ray is telling Alice or has just told Alice what 
really happened to their son that wasn't put up for adoption, but that actually his father killed their baby. And they sing this song called I Had a Vision where they're talking about the life they had imagined and how it compares to the life they've really inherited. And it's just kind of heart-wrenchingly honest and true to a real world experience. It's not a perfect Broadway imaginary world. It's, you know, life is not pretty all the time. And this is a really beautiful musical reflection of that. Well, and that's something that struck me about many of the characters in general. While you have a couple of characters who kind of are a little bit, not stereotypical per se, but a little bit more formulaic than some of the others, the vast majority of the of the characters in this show are actually well-rounded, sincere people. Yes, you cannot excuse the mayor in his actions. I mean, it's vile and reprehensible. But with someone like Alice, who has gone through so much, but is still a well-rounded person, who is still very even-handed. Billy, I mean, coming back from World War II, and it's funny because the Billy character has always kind of struck me as this Neil Simon-esque, has been in World War II, is coming home now to tell his stories. But it doesn't fall into that trope. It's, he's still equally as well-rounded. His love interest, Margot. I mean, it just, there's a patent sincerity of all the characters where they're not reduced to a base sentence. And that's not something you can always say about every character in a musical. Yeah, so the show, I mean, it has kind of an 11 o'clock number with this, this bar song where they're talking about drinking and talking about all the different drinks that they like. But even within that, there's still drama that's happening. You know, Billy goes and kisses someone who isn't Margot. And this whole time we're rooting for Billy and Margot to find their way back together. And there's just that real human moment of, oh, we've been drinking and we've been having a good time, but now I've done something that maybe I shouldn't have done. And I, I really appreciate those real moments in the context of the music. Absolutely. It's not even done for like a plum or out of the ordinary. It's just at the nature of the show, which makes it a charming, enjoyable. You come away from listening to the music or seeing the show. It's just fun. Not always happy, not always pleasing, but in the end, it's fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you want to listen to more of Bright Star... The album is being streamed on Spotify and Apple Music and pretty much anywhere you can find music nowadays. And we highly encourage you to go and listen for the first time, the tenth time, or the hundredth. Our intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.